Welcome to This Osteopathic Life. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey. I am honored to share with you the philosophy that has underscored my personal and professional life and explore how osteopathy truly is for the health of all things. I see these principles in action every day in my varied roles as physician, parent, athlete, writer, musician, coach, and entrepreneur, and hope they will light the way for the path to your best health. Please note that while I am a physician, this podcast is intended to share general information and encourage discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. Thank you for joining me for episode 19 of season 3 of This Osteopathic Life. Today, we're going to be talking about love languages, but not in the way you might have associated with this phrase, this term, this registered trademark by Gary Chapman in the past. And if you are familiar with that work, with the book, you might already begin to go to your default love language and think about the benefits you've had and the challenges you might have had around this concept. How I would like to visit this is through the lens of self-love and self-listening. And I'll give you the backstory on how this all came to pass and why it is we're here today exploring this concept. So let's pan out perhaps back to 2018. And I've shared with you, it's come up over and over again for me and consequently on this podcast that I suffered what I would consider to be the most significant injury of my life at that time. And it was an abdominal tear. And the reason it was so significant is it rendered me completely immobile for the better part of two months. Now, as I say that, I track back and I kind of look at the history of injuries in my own life, thinking about the way in which I associate with my body in its physical form, its physical capacity, being active, engaging in a wide variety of sports and outdoor physical activities, and indoor for that matter, having been a gym rat for many years. And what I remember, and I'll give you the history, we'll just go through a timeline here and we'll see maybe what transpires is somewhere around the age of five, I remember playing on a bar that was between two of my neighbor's houses and where you would get onto the bar, sit on the bar, and then fall back so that your knees were hooked on the bar, right? And you'd spin around the bar. You'd hang upside down. And I'd done that many, many times. And then one day I went to do that and I must have had a growth spurt because suddenly my head struck the ground, right? And so I had grown enough that I no longer could clear the ground to swing or swing myself around and I struck the back of my head hard enough that it warranted imaging. And when I think about that right now, I think, did I lose consciousness? Because if I think about the PCARN criteria as a physician, you know, what justified going in to have an emergent evaluation? If I think about being child number six and what would trigger the impetus to take a child in to be examined and have imaging is also curious to me. But in any case, I remember this not because of the injury. I don't remember particularly that act of getting injured, but I remember the results of the x-ray because it was stated that I had an extra bone in my head. And at the time, right, as a five-year-old, I'm envisioning Pluto's bone, right, the floating dog bone, somewhere in the depths of my brain. Because when I think in your head, I'm thinking in the contents, like within the inner sphere of my skull. And I'm thinking, this is pretty cool, right? Like this is some new special feature that I have. 
And I went along with that belief for many years, decades even. And when the movie Phenom came out with John Travolta, and he was found to have all these amazing skills, I got really scared for a minute because I thought, oh my gosh, what's, maybe that's what's happening, right? Because I was relatively gifted. I had high aptitude for many things. And I thought maybe it's this bone, right? This bone was my secret superpower. But then Phenom, if you watch the movie, right? It was a malignancy. And then I got a little more worried and concerned about it. And this is a total confessional moment. So you're here with me in this inner circle exploring this concept. And fast forward, you know, I've come through that. I survived, you know, I ebbed and flowed in the way I engaged with things, the skills that I had. And I was still operating with this concept that I had some extra bone in my head. And I perhaps did not think of it as Pluto's bone floating there, this cartoon dog bone anymore. But I just didn't think about it generally until I got to medical school. And I learned about ossification centers in the different bones of the skull. And I learned about Wormian bones. So that what might look like one smooth bone for some people may have different patches, kind of a patchwork of bony plates, if you will. And I remember that day in anatomy class, both some relief, you know, some explanation of what it was, and honestly, a little disappointment because I thought, well, this is not nearly as special and spectacular and superpower access as I thought it might have been. And now I get to decide whether or not that extra bone in my head can still be considered a superpower as such, but I remember that moment. So that was injury number one that I can track back and think of. I also had some various stitches requirements. Again, having grown up the youngest in a large troop of kiddos, there were some slippery surfaces and moments, but again, none of that seemed all that landmark to me at the time. The next event I can recall is in my freshman year of high school. I ran cross country and then I was playing volleyball in my freshman year. And there was one day we were doing some drills and we were running backwards across the court. And I tripped and fell and caught myself and didn't really notice much. But then over the next couple of weeks, my wrist was just sore. You know, I was still pretty functional. And thankfully for a cellist, it was my right wrist, which is a little friendlier, your bowing hand rather than the hand you use to play notes on the fingerboard of the cello. But it still was bothersome. And I taped it and finished out the rest of the season. And once it was done, we decided to then go in. And again, have an x-ray. So notice right here, there's a little more time lapse. There was an immediacy in that original imaging moment. And here, a little more margin, perhaps because of the age. Again, head versus wrist. The um, intent and the urgency is shifted. And it turned out I did have a fracture of the scaphoid bone in my wrist. And it is a bone that is challenged for blood supply. And so it doesn't necessarily just heal by splinting. It requires surgical intervention in order to bring the far away from the blood source and the nearest to the blood source parts together. And so I had to have a screw placed, a Herbert screw in my wrist. And the hand surgeon was able to do that. And I have a nice little kind of hook-shaped scar on my wrist. And I remember recovering from that without too much loss of time or function. Again, it was my dominant hand, but the things that were most important to me at that time, which would have been writing, I could manage, I could still hold the pencil and cello, I could still hold the bow. And so it was all pretty functional in that space. And moving forward from there, it was another really four years. You know, I had some different niggling aches and pains that actually probably kept me from running along with a sense of having done the same thing over and over and over again 
for four years into college, I had a stress fracture in my heel and we could track back to nutrition at that point. I was the world's worst vegetarian. I ate exclusively bread and someday I'll do that. I'm going to upload to the podcast, my love story with bread. I did a story hour on that. I did not eat many vegetables. I ate relatively little protein. You know, it was kind of in that fat phobic 1990s timeframe. And I ran a lot to be faster with cross country and with track. And so that combination and perhaps some poor running form, and we could talk about that in a different episode, led to a stress fracture in my heel, but again, not particularly debilitating. And again, I'm outlining this just to look through and see what messages we're getting from our body over time. And looking at this timeline, right, five years old, 14 years old, nearer to 18 years old, that's a pretty good run considering how much physical activity was happening in that time and how many opportunities there could have been for injury. And so here's a timeline when the injury gets a little confusing. So freshman year, I was on the rowing team and I entered a relatively skinny, fit, but not particularly strong person. I ran mostly, I was dining on just primarily bread products and I was relatively thin, but not particularly muscular. And I joined the rowing team. And almost immediately, as soon as there was this resistance training, and that was even just in the boat, or just the act of pulling an oar through the water, I began to put on muscle. That was kind of my default. When there was any stimulus, it was a pretty rapid acquisition of muscle mass. And fast forward into the dry land, the winter weight training season, I put on 20, maybe even a little bit more pounds of muscle. I've never gone back. I've never gone back to that baseline weight. I've now found this new barometer space, having acquired this muscle mass. But there was a moment, and again, it was interesting, right? That injury to the wrist in volleyball wasn't in any game, right? It was in a conditioning moment. And I recall very clearly, we had one day off during winter weight training, which was pretty intense. We had a pretty intense coach and we had rotated. We had a lovely facility at Grand Valley State University with all these different courts. And so we had a volleyball game going and a basketball game going. And I remember, so interesting, here's this moment. I didn't want to play basketball, right? Because I hadn't been conditioned to play basketball. I hadn't played basketball in a really long time. Volleyball, I felt comfortable with. I'd played all through high school. And I asked, right, could I just stay on the volleyball court? And the answer was no, everyone rotates. And so I was in this space of playing basketball. I pivoted to you know, reach for the ball because defense was my main strong suit there. And there was a pop in my knee and some swelling And I had enough of that 20-pound muscle mass that there wasn't a whole lot of instability, but it definitely wasn't right. And shortly thereafter, for other reasons, social, personal, time-wise, I ended up quitting the rowing team at that stage a couple months later and entering into marathon training for the team and training program to raise money for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And I ran my first marathon later that season up in Anchorage, Alaska, the Mayor's Midnight Sun Run, great adventure. And what I remember during that time was I tolerated running. I didn't tolerate as many of the kind of side to side, you know, lateral cutting type movements. And I would have this occasional swelling in my knee, but again, minimal instability because I had acquired quite a bit of muscle mass. So that was around the age of 18 to 19 in that space. Now, once again, I remained active. I rode Later, as I went to England, I rode more in that space. I remained active with weightlifting and running and cycling. I moved toward triathlon. And here again, we'll notice, and it's so interesting, again, when we invite this 
reflection on what has happened in our lives and perhaps what those signals are that we can tune into a little sooner. We are in the year after I have graduated college. I took a year off to race triathlons full-time. I had done two over the course of that summer, the first on this hybrid bike, and it was terrible in so much as I was the second slowest split on the bike. All these people were blasting past me, but I loved it because I was able to swim, I was able to bike, and then on the run, the benefit of having been so far back on the bike is there are a lot of people in front of me, and so I was able to catch a lot of runners, and that's quite motivating in the final stage of a triathlon. And I did one more, a longer race, a half Ironman at the end of the summer, and got four flat tires, so the bike took forever, and I was certainly way towards the back of the pack on that one, but still enjoyed it, even though it hadn't gone perfectly, and so I was ready to take this whole year and race full-time. And one week in, right, so it's September, mid-September of this year, after I graduated college, before I was going to medical school, I had been accepted and deferred my admission. Everything was set. I had this space built in, and I found myself at my local YMCA, where I had trained for many different sessions all through high school and through college and beyond. And I was getting ready to leave, and I walked past the gym, which was carpeted, which is so bizarre, and there was a pickup volleyball game going. And again, I thought, oh, well, that's pretty fun, right? I'm in this year off. Like, let's go and have some fun. And I walked in and I announced similar, and I hear this now even more than I ever have before, a parallel to that experience back during that cross-training day during freshman year rowing. When I said, hey, I'd love to join. I'm a setter, right? If you are familiar with volleyball, the setter is the person who uses both hands right, and lifts the ball up, sets the hit up. They're the second hit generally in any sequence, right? Someone receives the ball, they bump it up and then set, right? The setter's the set in the bump set spike sequence. And that was my role. And it worked well. I was comfortable. I was familiar. That's where I wanted to be. And I said, could I set for you, right? And many times there's different rotations you can play, but you can play a five and one where the setter is always the setter, right? They're not doing anything else. They're always finding themselves into that position, taking that role. And the answer was no. We all rotate. Right? Do you hear that echo? That was the same answer before. No, we have to rotate between all the sessions. And in this, the answer was no, we rotate between all positions. Now here, what I can recognize is the opportunity to say, okay, thank you. Right? I'm a setter and I choose not to rotate. And that means I just wouldn't play. That's hindsight, right? which we can look at as 2020. But in any case, what I see in both of those spaces too is not wanting to make a scene Right, to cause any trouble and to just go with the flow. And there's no problem with that unless right, it's taking you out of the space that is your own self-advocacy for your own best interest and recognizing that you're allowed to have certain parameters, certain boundaries in situations. So in that time, not having that insight in the moment and thinking, it's all right, right? this is pretty casual, I can hang. I entered into the rotation and it might have been even literally the first rotation. I was in a hitting position, right? So you have to, to go up for an approach. You jump, you're in the air, and you strike the ball, and then you land. I go to do this. I land, and I land on the foot of a person who was under the net, right? Inappropriate placement. We can look at all the different ins and outs. I land on their foot. There is a very active doo-doo side to side of my knee, and immediately I know, like, my ACL is gone. All right, so I'm on the floor. And I'm in pain. I'm also in a lot of emotional pain because I'm thinking immediately, right? This was my year off, right? I've just injured my knee. 
what did this even happen? Like, what was, was it worth this moment in time? And so I scooched myself off the court because those who had, you know, encouraged me to play but rotate said, hey, could you move off the court? We're trying to keep this game going. <laughs> and so I remember scooting myself, like, with my hands off the court and coming out to, to my car and getting out the cell phone. And it was in the black leather bag, you know, the cell phone that you plugged into the uh, lighter, the cigarette lighter in your car, and all the numbers were on the back of the phone. It was like a Zach Morris moment. I phoned my now husband, then boyfriend in England, to review the unfortunate events that had just transpired. And it was deemed at the time, my first surgical evaluation, was that there wasn't enough instability to justify surgery, and that as I wasn't a competitive athlete, it wasn't a requirement. I could get by without this ACL. And again, being in a space to just say, okay, with what was given to me by the authority figure, that's what happened. And I didn't have surgery right away, not necessarily taking into account that I was a competitive athlete. Maybe I wasn't going to play pro volleyball, but I had taken this year off, right, to race triathlon full time. And that's a sport. And granted, the ACL may be less crucial because it's a lot of midline, you know, straight on activity. But at the same time, I planned to use this knee for as long as I was able, you know, in some pretty significant spaces. And so it wasn't until the end of that year off, kind of toward the spring, summertime, that I had a second opinion and it was deemed, yes, I should have the surgery. And I did. And eventually I was able to recover, you know, on that knee, it does what it does. That leg's a little bit smaller, but I've managed through there. And so here we are in my adult life. You know, I ran triathlons for a good 15 years and I do think that having that injury allowed me to return to medical school. Had I stayed racing triathlon full-time for a year, I think I would have stayed racing triathlon full-time for a longer time and moving into training. And who knows, had I, would I have gone back into medical school? So there's that component of the how is this perfect inquiry in a response to that. So here we are in adult life, and I went for a relatively long time without any significant injuries. And those who are around me might have a different perspective, but I really can't think of a time when my training was significantly interrupted. I had pregnancies and I had some changes in training in those spaces, but not significant. And then it was really 2018, right? So relatively recently that I had this abdominal injury. And that was the one, right, that felt like the universe shifted a bit, where I really couldn't do anything. And from that time, some of the lessons, right, some of that input I was gaining was that I needed to learn how to process, how to be, how to feel without significant physical activity. And I gained that some, right? But if you can imagine all those years of really associating with myself as a physically capable and active person to not be in this space without, eight weeks isn't going to necessarily undo or balance out all of that history, And so it is that the lesson has been re-presented to me a number of times. So I've shared with you in recent weeks, I came through some swelling in my other knee, the knee that didn't have surgery, and paused on running and made do with various ranges of motion and patience in the recovery process. And I had a very minor tweak in my back, and I just gave that time. And in these last four weeks, I have been probably at my top physical form. And I think about that from the perspective of all the variety of activities I was able to do 
teaching yoga, getting back into rowing, getting my road bike back out into the summer swimming, coaching and practicing CrossFit workouts multiple times per week. And I had just reintroduced the run one week ago yesterday. So we're recording here on Thursday, Wednesday, last week, I brought back the run through this replication of an event I've loved in Ashland, the pool to path where you swim 500 yards and run a 5k and you do that each week on the same day for four weeks, generally in the month of July. And so I was looking to recreate it. And last Wednesday, my knee was feeling better. My back was feeling better. I had the time in the evening. It was pouring rain, but it was warm rain. It was summer rain and there was no threat of a storm or of lightning. So it wasn't risky. It was just wet. And if you're swimming, you're already wet, right? If you're used to triathlon, you get onto the bike and you're wet and you're usually wet all the way through the run. So it's really not a problem. And I wasn't actively biking during the race. I was just doing the swim and run. And originally I had invited a number of people who declined due to the weather, due to timing and whatnot. And it was totally great. I swam, I got out and I ran and on the run, really for the first time, probably in those kind of four to six weeks of recovering the knee and having had this back tweak, everything felt great. And I remember actively thinking that, wow, right, everything feels great. And I remember thanking my body, right? Thank you for coming through this recovery process with me. Congratulations for what you're able to do. I so appreciate you. And I finished the run and I did get on my bike because that's how I transport myself to the lake. And that was actually the least comfortable part of the whole thing is just biking around in the rain. But again, still quite pleasant. Made it home, was feeling great because early in the day I had crushed this workout and just looking at my own time against myself and the different movements and the weights I was able to sustain. And I had talked with a friend sharing how I was just feeling fully myself, right? I said, doing all of these things, teaching yoga and coaching workouts and being able to bring back the swim and the bike and the run and the row and all these things I love, I feel the most me I have felt in so long. And we celebrated that together. And then Thursday morning, one week ago today, I was in a workout with a friend, working through all the coaching, all the technique, and I'm relatively conscientious with the barbell and with deadlifts in particular. And I had given all the cues. I had made the statements around, you know, the way we can fail deadlifts successfully and was literally on the second to last, the penultimate, which is my favorite word, but not in this case, rep of this workout. I had come through a three rep max, kind of lifetime three rep max in this workout. And we were on the final set, right? Second to last movement. And I was in my head thinking, wow, this bar is moving quite well. And for whatever reason, and this is actually replayed a number of times in this past week, I glanced down at the bar. And let me tell you, if you've ever done a deadlift, which is just picking something up from the ground and standing essentially, but you have a tall, proud chest, you're hinging at the hips, your knees are back, your shins are vertical, your lats are engaged, or all these different ways to really highlight where you should feel this movement. And I literally only ever feel deadlifts in the back of my legs, in my hamstrings. I never, and I'm saying this with 100% resolution, feel them in my back. I feel them only in my legs. And in this moment, if glancing down at the bar, I introduced enough flexion, this is my post-injurious assessment, for there to be some vulnerability, right, in those low disc spaces. And I felt this surge, until I can describe it, across my low back. And I finished the last rep and I put the bar down. And I said, that, that was weird. I've never felt that before. And it seemed to be in the back and muscular. And that was my hope, right? That was my wish in that moment. Because that 
we can recover pretty quickly. And so I put the bar down and kind of came through the cool down and I went through the rest of the day and I was just aware. I was aware of my back and, you know, lamenting that moment for sure. Cause when have I ever glanced down at the bar and what good was that? And I should know better and all of these different, you know, shoulda, coulda, woulda moments. And then it became clear later into the evening that it wasn't quite right. And then I was in the night, which is when our body can often have a moment to inform us because we're quiet enough for its voice to be heard. And here's where we're coming around to love languages. So that was what my sister would call a long story long to get us here. But I think important to take that journey. And I encourage you to do that yourself. Track back, not to highlight all that's wrong with you, right? All the failures of your body. No, but the messaging, right? Even just saying it out loud here, I hear now when my body was giving me information because me making those statements of, can I just stay at this station and can I rotate here? Wasn't me being a coward or me being high maintenance. It was me listening to my body and advocating for myself, but right, not taking the extra step of really upholding that boundary and noticing that when I'm asking for that permission from someone else and I don't get the response that keeps me in that space, that's safe, right? And there are times absolutely to push the margin but those were cues to say, right, this isn't what's best for you. I still have to listen and then act from a place of courage and a willingness to uphold that boundary, even if it's inconvenient for someone else, especially in those power struggle places, right? So I'm the athlete. I have a coach. I'm a freshman. You know, we're here with all ages. How can I you know, object to this? But that's also the practice is saying, well, I am my own advocate, right? I am the one who will be that final line of defense? And so how will I show up? And how will I tune in to the information that I'm receiving? And so when I woke up in the middle of the night, you know, Thursday into Friday, and I felt sensations, we'll say, that I hadn't felt before in my left foot. I thought, oh, right, because knowledge of anatomy, right, both with the wormy and bones and with the nerve roots and disc relationships, thinking this is more than just a strain of the muscles of my back. And I was quite disappointed and frustrated. You know, in the next morning, I coached the workout rather than complete it. And I hoped to, right? Okay, self-healing resolution, it's going to happen. But a realistic timeline is not 24 hours from the event. Although miracles can happen. And having listened to the miracle equation in her hearing Hal Elrod's capacity to think himself well, right? Think his healing process from different fractures in his body. I am harnessing that. I'm tapping into it, but with a sense of reality also. And so I took myself out of rowing. I paused running and jumping. I very significantly scaled back any weights, range of motion, different movements. You're really tuning in to my body. And it just came through for me in that moment. And really, even in the days following, because I kept telling the story, man, I was just feeling so good and verbalizing gratitude to my body. And there was a sense of how dare my body do this. I had just said, thank you. I had just acknowledged it for all I could do. And this is the repayment. And as I say that now, and as I look back on it, I think, oh, wow. Well, maybe my words of affirmation are not the love language of my body. And perhaps it is more so that I need to offer the body space rather than more stimulus as a thank you for what it can do. Because my response 
to capacity, right? And that's what it is. I relate to my body with this gratitude for what it can do, right? The tasks it can take on, the weight that it can lift, the pace that it can maintain, you know, the energy that it can exude into the world. And my reward for it is often more, right? Look at what you can do. Thank you. Here's another bike ride, right? And look at what you can do. Thank you. Let's go into this next workout. And perhaps the way my body feels appreciated is rest, right? And it can whisper that to me. It can offer it back to me in a lot of different ways. And it was speaking that to me in those spaces when it was saying, right, not this activity right now. We're not ready for this. We're not trained for this. This is not our capacity. We don't want to do this. Or, right, here we are. You did all those things. You're doing more of those things. You need to do less of those things. And I will say, even right now, that is so hard for me to process because I do associate with myself as an active and capable person. And actually, just yesterday, I had the beautiful opportunity to be with some longtime friends and their entire family. And that's the lens they have of me historically and even presently. Because if you are with me on social media on my personal page, you'll see I'll put a picture up of the daily workout each day in an equation around that. And so to not be able to offer that up or to be able to have to offer up a asterisk, right? The yes, but, right? Are you running? Well, I was up until you know, a week ago. It's hard, right? And it's that space of identity. But what I realize is that while I was operating from a sense of love and gratitude, and absolutely I was, what that means is I was also operating out of a space of condition, conditional love, right? So I love my body because it can do all these things. Yes, but when it doesn't, how are you still showing up in love in that place? And then what is the love language? So maybe it is quality time, but maybe it's quality time resting. And maybe it's quality time mobilizing. And maybe it's quality time full on sleeping, right? So there might be different ways that my body receives the gratitude for all that it can do. And this moment in time of this injury is an invitation to explore that and to listen in and to get real-time feedback on what that might be. And so when I talk today about love languages, what I invite you to do is to consider what your love language is from yourself. So that's an important skill and an awareness to have of how you receive love and gratitude from other people. But also check in and notice how that is for yourself. And that might seem counterintuitive, like how would I not be speaking the language that I understand? But there's a difference, right, in our output and in our thinking concept of how we are, how we love ourselves, how we need to be, what we need to receive, and our feeling self, how that shows up. And also the connection between the two and how we are tuning in to our mind our body and our spirit, how we're listening in to the inner dialogue, the sensations, the narrative that we're receiving, how we're honoring it, how we're showing up as that key advocate for ourselves in various spaces, and then noticing what we compromise and why. And then it's often because, like me in my freshman year of rowing, or me in that pickup volleyball game, not wanting to inconvenience some other person or to require special treatment 
or to not just be able to do whatever it is, right? We trust ourselves to have this capacity. So we think, oh, I can just muscle through and power through this space. And so as I move into this week with this revelation of tuning in to the receptive love language of my body and the output that I'm providing and noticing how I can integrate them more effectively, I extend that same invite to you. And notice that it doesn't have to mean you are limited in the negative way we will often associate with that word, but that you have an inner wisdom. Your body has this knowing of what it can, should, wants to do, needs to do, needs for re-engagements, rejuvenation. And we have the opportunity to listen in. And when we're expressing gratitude, noticing when we do it as I did last Wednesday and in the days following, retold that story with this sense of, oh, I expressed gratitude and this is how you repay me. And think about how you might be saying that to yourself over and over again, how you might be saying that to others out loud or internally in your thoughts and how instead there could be an opportunity to say, I know that I'm grateful. I appreciate this. What is the way that I can both show appreciation and that would be appreciated by the person, be that another or yourself, to whom you are extending that gratitude? And so that's where I am this week and what I'm going to move into. And interestingly, as we come to our conclusion here, what comes up for me is spending more time And hear this thread as it came through, right? The most important thing in that freshman year of high school injury was the capacity to continue to play cello and bringing music more fully into my own life and into the life of my family and to our wider community here is important to me. And so here's an opportunity to invest some of that time that would have gone into physical movement back into music. And so maybe that's the gratitude my body is looking for is quality time, but not in the way of more workouts or movements, but in the way of engagement with the different instruments we have available to us here. So that's where I am. And I thank you for joining me on that journey. And it was so helpful to speak it out and to watch and walk that timeline and see what the priorities were, to notice the spaces of self-judgment, to notice the spaces of self-ignorance. Right? When I put my own self in a corner, I put that inner voice off to the side and said, well, that's my request, but let me go ahead and just pretend it wasn't there so that I can adapt to these requirements that are being made by others around me. And invite us all to tune in to those love languages that we have. Be willing to experiment and find out which are actually the most meaningful. And to remember that we are absolutely always our own best advocate and to recognize when we're maybe not upholding that responsibility in the way that we could, should, or would. There's a time I'll let us use that trifecta of words. So here we are, one more week, and I'll update you on how the recovery process is going. It's humbling, and it's also informative, and I'll take all that comes from it. This is Dr. Millie Beeky with This Osteopathic Life. Thank you for listening.